Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, dressed listeners, today's guest, David Wolf, has been called, quote, a true force in the industry, one of the fashion industry's most authoritative sharpshooters, and the oracle on fashion trends. (laughs) I love love that that so much. It's so great. It's very charming. So all of these quotes are referencing the almost five-decade-long reign of today's guests as one of the world's leading fashion trend forecasters. This is actually a profession, April, that we have not delved into on the show at all in all of our seasons. So we are very excited to talk to David today and learn more about it. Mm-hmm. And David is a man of many, many hats, many of which he wore all at the same time. Uh, he was also a magazine editor and an internationally sought-after fashion illustrator. And today, he is an acclaimed paper doll artist specializing in recreating that oat Hollywood glam of our favorite stars from cinematic history. Needless to say, his career has quite the trajectory. And we are so pleased to welcome David to the show to discuss his 60-year career in fashion. David, thank you so much for joining us. David, welcome to Dressed. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Well, it's my pleasure because it's my favorite subject, me. Yes. (laughs) And I'm so excited to talk to you. You've lived this truly incredible life. You've had not one, but several successful careers. You've been a fashion illustrator, a fashion editor, a trend forecaster, and now a paper doll artist. But before we learn all about these different facets of your career and your life, I'm hoping you can share with us a little bit about your formative years, about the younger David. For instance, do you have an early introduction of fashion or clothing or textiles that sparked your interests in the subject? Absolutely. I, I think I was fascinated by fashion from the very beginning because I, I was so hungry for, for beauty and glamour and everything. And I lived in Ohio in the rest. That'll do it. <laughs> and I liked pretty things. And there weren't any in my life because Ohio was not this world's capital of beauty and glamour. Yeah. And I think I, I listened to this wonderful interview with you on the decoder ring in which you talked about your childhood interests in paper dolls. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I feel like that's also an early part of your intro to fashion and glamour, right? Absolutely. I always tell everyone if I hadn't played with paper dolls when I was a little boy, then I wouldn't be in fashion because I learned all about color and coordination and what accessory goes with what. And the person I have to thank for that is my cousin Lois, who was my role model. She was eight years older than I. And when I used to go visit, visit her, she would let me play with her paper dolls. And I would always be in trouble and that I was going to be found out because my father did not approve of boys who played paper dolls. Yeah, I was going to say this is the 40s and 50s, right? So maybe maybe not acceptable for boys to have, have that type of toy. Well, when I, I so often when I meet an elderly gay man, we discuss paper dolls because that is sort of the thing that clever boys could get away with playing with 
is because they could be hidden away from father. So I, I loved, you know, movie stars who were eight years out of date when I started playing with paper dolls. I was wanting to escape into, into something that was prettier. I had a very strange childhood because I was like a toddler truant, terror. I had a health problem. So I was, I was a sickly child, <laughs> to put it mildly. And, but, and I had to rely on my own self-identity because I always got my own way, 100%. And I think I needed that strength of belief in my, in my opinion and my taste when I was a toddler so that I could then, I always joked that I had to run the fashion industry. Right. And anybody who argued with me was, you know, in deep trouble. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I was, I was a very strong, solitary, lonely, difficult toddler. And now I'm, a, I'm not lonely, but I'm certainly not a toddler. But I'm still convinced it should be my way or the, or the highway. And someone who's still playing with paper dolls, arguably, although now you design them and, and draw them yourselves, which is something I'm so excited to talk to you more about a little bit later on. But it sounds like you were a young boy um, with a huge imagination who found the fantasy and joy in fashion very, very early. I read this interview with you where you said, when I was in the second grade, I got into serious trouble. I not only said I wanted to be a dress designer, but I drew a picture of a hula girl with a navel. I guess I knew low risers were coming. And this this reminds me of Jean-Paul Gaultier because he talks about getting in trouble in class for drawing showgirls. But that's something you were doing at an early age too. Well, well, Yves Saint Laurent gave his paper dolls to the foundation. And uh, I, was, I was very excited about that because he evidently had a collection of, of hundreds of paper dolls that he drew very badly, by the way. <laughs> we actually saw those this summer. We were at the Yves Saint Laurent Museum in Paris and they had his paper dolls on display. Yes. I mean, I, I think that's uh, a sort of given for a very secret society in the world, boys who should have been dress designers. Yes, yes, absolutely. And who became dress designers and like yourself became very, very successful in the fashion industry. I'd love if you could tell us about your first job in fashion. And also because this is the 1960s in Ohio, what was it like during this time and how did this influence your work? Well, the 60s in Ohio was like the 50s in the rest of the world. Okay. (laughs) But the thing that, that I had access to was local newspapers, because in, in those days when I was growing up, the newspapers all had fashion stories and fashion advertising and beautiful artwork, uh, just because they, they were insular and they could, they could afford newspaper lineage into a degree that we can't do today. So that's why there aren't beautiful, big drawings in the newspapers. It would be too expensive. But that's that's what they did. So every every Sunday, I would look at the Cleveland Plain Dealer and, and see twenty pages of fashion illustration. And I always liked drawing. In my solitary childhood, I drew all the time, and I was a coloring book fanatic who did not put up with anything going out of the lines. I could get get very upset with people who didn't color properly. So. It was like I was hollow and I was beginning to fill up whatever this vessel is that's me. And I wanted to be a fashion illustrator right from, from the get, get-go. 
I really succeeded in a, in a way that I never dreamed of. And that, that was sort of a life lesson I learned later on. Don't make your dream too small. Dream big so you can go on dreaming and challenging and trying the rest of your life. Because that's what makes it exciting. Absolutely. And so from 1968 to 1968, I believe you worked at Carlisle's department store. Well, I already almost had a fashion career as a model agent before I worked at Carlisle's. Oh, okay. I had a sister three years younger than I. And uh, she and she and I were like cat and dogs fighting when we when we were little, and because uh, she was the perfect son for my father, she could play football, she could throw the baseball, and she could ride a two wheel bike like a fiend, and so we had nothing in common because there was little sickly you know convulsed David in playing with his paper dolls, and we had nothing in common until she became an adolescent and something wonderful happened. She blossomed into a beautiful young woman. And, and by that time, I was in, in high school. And I always think the first things I said when I was learning to speak as a child was, I got to get out of here. And when I looked at her, I thought, well, she looks so much like a fashion illustration. She looks like a paper doll. And then I thought to me, well, then why couldn't she be a model? And I took care of grooming her as a teenager to be a model. So I did all kinds of research. I'm a, I'm a research fiend. And, and so I found out all about the modeling industry, which was not what it is today, but was certainly, certainly an escape from Ohio. And so when she graduated from high school, we got on the Greyhound bus and went to New York and rented a, a garden apartment for $110 a month. Wow. And I, I had found out that the Ford agency had an uh, open go-see every Tuesday afternoon. And uh, the, those figures are, are staggering if, when you start doing research. Maybe 7,500 girls every year uh, who wanted to be Ford. And so I knew, I knew it was a long shot, but I had, I had taught myself to be a photographer. I could do my sister Sally's makeup. And I cut her hair and took her pictures and made the portfolio and everything. And we went to the, the go see. And it was terrifying because it was summer, hot June in Manhattan. And, and hundreds of girls were lined up. The foreign agency in those days was on the third floor of a Victorian building on the Upper East Side. And so we, we joined the line. And it was interesting because there were so many girls. and. They were all so hopeful, and so the line moved very slowly, and the ones exiting would have, would create room for the ones who were just coming in, but the ones who exiting looked depressed and teary and everything was awful. And uh, got to Eileen's office, and there was like a lesbian sergeant in charge who directed the girls in and out, and they would go in for a nanosecond, you know, maybe 30 seconds, and then they were tossed out. And Sally went in and uh, Eileen Ford liked her and started, said she was going to start testing her. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah, so, so I couldn't believe that I, I had done so well. So we started the, the routine and I, uh, I went with her, with her for the, the, all the test photos and things like that. But it turned out that she was not 
absolutely happy with it. She had a bad experience with a with a oversexed photographer, and it really affected her a lot. And she kept it a secret even from me for years. I mean, it wasn't violent or anything, but it was tasteless. And so she said, you know, uh, that she had to tell me the truth about how she was feeling because she didn't like New York. David, you and your sister actually both returned to Ohio after New York, and that's where you found a job at the Carlisle Department Store. And you worked there basically throughout the entire 60s. You worked there from 1960 to 68. And you first, I believe, worked in advertising, but then you became a fashion illustrator, and you even became their fashion coordinator. And this is also where you met your lovely wife, Sheila. Can you talk to us about your time there and what that meant to you in terms of influencing your fashion career? What were those first stages like for you? It was the most wonderful job I could have ever imagined. It was like a graduate school for fashion. And I, as you said, you know, I was a fashion illustrator. I was the window dresser. I was, I was everything and learning all the time. It was just heaven for me. And because I knew all about modeling, I took charge of the fashion shows. When you would think in Ashtabula, Ohio, there would not be a big market for fashion shows. But I actually kind of seduced the local population into being enchanted by glamour and, and stuff. And, and Sally, my sister, was around, so she was my star model. She'd always be the bride in the clothes every, every fashion show. And the fashion shows got out of control, and the Ashtabula Fire Department insisted that we no longer have the fashion shows in the dress department or the bridal salon. And uh, we would have to move to bigger premises, so we moved to the Ashtabula Playhouse. And like for my back-to-school fashion show, when I would choose the teenage models from the local high schools and market them as as a teenage high school girl model club. And it was great fun, and the capacity for the Playhouse was 2,500 people, and they, they, it was standing room only. So I really had a great job and loved, to, loved doing it. And that's where I met Sheila, who was the buyer in the cosmetic department. I had had a very bleak period when I was about 19 and ended up in a mental hospital for a few months. And uh, so then when I was well enough to go back to work, my sister Sally quit her job in Virginia and came to live with me in Ashtabula to look after me and make sure I wasn't trying to do anything hurtful to myself because I was really dangerously ill. The thing that amuses me now, and I think how horrible and how indicative of what the world was like then, I remember meeting my therapist at the hospital, and he was a dead ringer for Abraham Lincoln. And I thought, this is too crazy. I cannot have Lincoln as my therapist. (laughs) (laughs) And he was very positive and everything, and I was very worried. And so I finally dared him to tell me what I suspected was the truth, and I asked him if there was any possibility I could be a homosexual. And he said, absolutely not, or not. And many therapists after that <laughs> disagreed with his diagnosis. But uh, anyway, I, Sally got a job at Carlisle's because I could, I could use my influence there. And she worked in the handbag department, which was right next to the cosmetic department. And she and Sheila became uh, great friends. 
I would actually love, David, if we could hear more about Sheila because she has quite the story herself. She came from Britain to America with a touring circus of all things and ended up having to stay behind in Ohio after a bad fall from an elephant. So she sounds like quite the force and was actually very instrumental in jumpstarting the next phase in your career. She was an incredible woman. She she wasn't beautiful or pretty in the standard way, but she was like a, a Victorian oil painting profile, that kind of thing, not the, not the American cheerleader type. She was married and had two, two young daughters who, who were so adorable, and they still are so, so adorable, but they, they were three and four when I met them. And she was just, was, I, I loved her accent, I loved her brain, and she, we, were, we were a great couple. And so um, she divorced her husband and married me. And we, we lived excitingly, but not smoothly for years. I always say I would have not have had a career if, if I hadn't met Sheila, because she was like Mama Rose and Gypsy, and, and I, was, uh, I was a star that she believed in. So, And uh, she was the funniest woman I ever knew, and she knew how to make me laugh like nobody's business, which was great. And she's the, she's the one who's responsible for the, the terrible mob scene I had at the Beatle concert. Do you know about that? Yes, that was definitely one of my questions, because if I'm not mistaken, in 1964 is an incident you're talking about where you were um, mistaken for someone. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about that? <laughs> Well, uh, I, as uh, someone who was obsessed with, with fashion, uh, I knew a lot about European pop culture because I, I had all the European magazines bought for me at, at Carlisle's for my uh, fashion work with them. So I had learned about the Beatles when they were first happening in, in a big way in the UK with lots of, lots of media coverage. And I, I thought it was absolutely cool. And so I, I got she, well, Sheila's girlfriend, who was a hairdresser, to give me a chamber pot haircut that the Beatles had when they were young, and a silky suit and Chelsea boots. So, because uh, I used I used to play fashion seriously on myself, and I I, I was crazed about looking like a Beatle. And so uh, the the Beatles did not come to Cleveland, but there was a, a closed circuit TV concert given in in, a, in the movie theater. And uh, I had a kid brother that, that uh, was a, a Beatles fan. So we went to the concert together. And as we had our seat, I started hearing like a, a crowd noise building, but I couldn't realize what they were talking about until the, the girls sitting in the row in front of us turned around and started climbing over the seats and said, Paul's here, Paul's here. <laughs> And so the, all the girls, I mean, the, uh, hormonally challenged adolescents climbed over their chairs and started coming because they just wanted to touch my suit. And it, it got out of control and they were climbing over each other and crying and screaming and everything. And, and so I tried to get out and couldn't. But evidently the, the, the theater manager understood that the story was happening and he called the police to rescue me. So that's how it ended up a front page story on in, in the Cleveland Plain Dealer that I still remember to this this day, you know. 
How could you forget being mobbed by a bunch of teenage girls? I mean, it's funny because 1964 is when Beatlemania like hit America. I think they did a tour here, right? As you just mentioned. So everyone was so excited about the Beatles. And then to have one in their very own local theater. (laughs) There must have been one. It it, it convinced me that I didn't want to be a rock star. They literally tore my suit to bits. Oh my goodness, that is a story for the books. Do you have a picture of that front page article by chance? Maybe I can track it down. I used to. I don't think I don't think I have it anymore. If so, it will be a bright yellow and bone dry. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like some sleuthing I'm gonna do now to see if I can track down this front page article. But you mentioned Sheila. She was responsible for so much of um, she was your biggest champion. She helped you so much in your career. And in one way in which she did that was this really transformative experience in 1969, where I believe you went on a family vacation to London and you never came back. (laughs) I'm no fool. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to tell us, I mean, in a very short period in 1969, you became an internationally sought after fashion illustrator. So you came a long way from Ohio department stores can you tell us about the events that inspired this change in your life and, and career trajectory? Oh, absolutely. We saved our money to go uh, to England on a vacation after we were married. And uh, I wanted to meet her family. And I wanted, I wanted to certainly go to England because I, I knew from pop culture that that's where fashion was being born daily. And, and so I thought that would be a, a fun vacation. We belonged to a charter airline club. So well long before you were born, it used to be uh, such a big deal to travel to Europe that people would save up, would join clubs so they could get cheap fares from the, being club members to the, in these com- groups that uh, were run by the airlines and travel agents. So we saved our money for a year, I guess it was, and, and went to England. And I swear to God, when I got off the plane and got into, into the taxi to go to Shiva's parents' home, I felt I'm in the right place. I, I loved it so much, I could hardly stand it. And that I still love England that much. But uh, Sheila, Pushy Sheila, said that she wanted me to take my portfolio on this vacation and to, and to show it to people of of influence and knowledge, and they, they would give me helpful hints on how to be a better artist. I didn't want to do any of this because I was inherently a sad, lonely boy, and I had to force myself to behave the way Sheila knew I should behave if I wanted to be successful. And I, I always think about Cary Grant's great story. He said that when he was born Archie Leach, that was his real name. And so he created Cary Grant and then became him. So I thought if he did that, I can create a, a new David Wolf and become him. And that's what I did. But then you can't go back. You're, you're stuck being this obnoxious, terrific, dynamic person, which is exhausting, but I'm glad, I'm glad I did. So anyway, I had my portfolio and hid it away in a closet uh, and hoped that nobody, that Sheila would not remember where it was. But she, of course, she did. And I said, all right, well, well who, should, uh, who should I call in a, in a very sort of snotty way? So I started making a list of to-do and, and I started at the bottom and worked my way up. And she said, no, never do that. 
start, I, and I share this with students all the time, start at the top because you can easily fail once, but you're still on the top of the stairway. Great advice. Yeah. So at that time, Fortnum and Mason, which is still a great store, but it was the fashion story of leadership in, in the European fashion market. It still was in those days a, a very important fashion store as well as a, a food and a fragrance kind of uh, store. So uh, I called their fashion office and asked if I could have an appointment to see their fashion directrice. And they, God knows why, but they said yes. And I, I had a new outfit from Carnaby Street that I was dying to break in anyway. And uh, I picture this. There was a suit made with tiny, tiny shoulders, big lapels, hourglass shape, and very, very wide pants. And it's done in soft, dusty pink flannel. And I wore it with a deep purple ruffled pirate shirt and cobra platform high-heeled boots. And it's still in my beetle hair, of course. <laughs> so, so I went, went in to see her, and uh, uh, her name was Anne Knight. And she was famous in UK retailing because she had been fashion director of Harrods when she imported uh, pantyhose to the UK market. So that made her a retail star. So I walked into her office and nearly fainted with fear because, first of all, the office was gorgeous and it was all furnished by with Louis XVI jewel furniture and art. And she was sitting at her desk wearing a black Saint Laurent couture suit with a hat, because fashion people used to wear hats at their desk in those days. So I, I did my spiel with my portfolio and explained that I had come up with this idea that I was using in America at Carlisle's, and I called it image advertising. And now this is so much the way the world happens, but it was a revolution when I was pitching it to people that it didn't matter what the fashion merchandise was. You show them something beautiful and sell them what they want. And the two things often are not the same thing, but they're happy. And so she, she thought that was a good idea. And so I reached the end of my show and tell with the portfolio and closed it up. And she just looked at me and looked at me and looked at me. And I started sweating. <laughs> and I thought, you know, open the trap doors in, so, in the floor so I can get away out of here. And so she, she said, uh, yeah, yes, I, I have a question for you. Can you go to Paris for me this afternoon? What? Yeah. And I said, that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the thing that makes it so neat is we were, the day I had the appointment was the day before we were due to get on the plane and go back to Ashtabula, Ohio where we lived in a house trailer, by the way. So Paris, of course. So she said, all right, uh, I need you, someone to do my advertising. And I bought the front page of British Vogue for the next year. And that's where, that's where the Fortnum and Mason fashion ads are going to go. And she said, so I'm going to give you the front page of Vogue, every issue. And I want you to tell me what we should show and, and want you to do it. Uh, for the first issue, because I've just signed an exclusive contract with Ungaro for his first ready-to-wear collection. And so when you get to Paris, he'll be meeting you at the airport uh, with a limo, and we'll take you to the salon, and he'll, he'll have two models there and the collection. And I want you to draw whatever you want to 
write whatever copy you think should be needed. And uh, from now on, it's yours. And so when the first issue came out, I became overnight a star in, in industry in, in London. So we went back to uh, our flight back to Ohio and, and I quit my job at Carlisle's. And we packed up steamer trunk and had a, bought tickets to cross the Atlantic and in the last crossing, crossing of the Queen Elizabeth. But all on your way to this exciting new life that is going to transform your career, your life, everything. And we are going to hear all about it uh, after a brief sponsor break. So it's 1969, David. You've moved your family across the Atlantic for this exciting new life in London where you become this highly sought-after freelance fashion illustrator. And this is actually a job you enjoy throughout the 1970s. Your works appear in the pages of Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Women's Wear Daily. Your clients included Liberty of London, Adele Rootstein, Mannequin, Selfridges. The list really goes on. And something that I really love about your career is how multifaceted it is and is not necessarily a linear or like chronological trajectory from one career to the next. In fact, many of these different elements are happening at once, including your fashion illustration and trend forecasting careers, both of which took off at the end of the 60s. And actually, almost immediately upon moving to London, you meet Lee Rudd, one of the founders of I Am International, which is this monthly fashion news report that transformed into a world premier trend forecasting service, thanks actually to your incredible vision. We've never done an episode on the subject of trend forecasting, so please can you tell us about what trend forecasting is and then how you got your start in this exciting field? Okay, there is ain't such a thing anymore. It existed in a bubble of time that was, it's not happening ever again. So, but I recognize the potential when it started. So let's, let's just pretend trend forecasting has not started yet. And I meet Lee Rudd, who is dynamic, eccentric thinker. And uh, I was doing freelance for women's work. So even though it was coming from the London Bureau, they would fly me over to Paris to do the sketches and then fly back like a long, very long distance commuter. But, uh, okay. So I, I met Lee Rudd because the editor of the London Bureau of Women's Wear Daily suggested that I give Lee a call because Lee Rudd had said she was looking for a, a, an illustrator. I went to see her. And she had a table covered with the paper and sketches and notes and yellow legal pads with the handwritten and everything. And she said, you know, she didn't have anything except uh, she had a consultancy with a partner that she has a row with. And so she, she owns the name, I am international, but she didn't know what it meant really. And she knew so much was happening in London that she wanted to start a, a monthly report on What's, what's selling, what's not selling, what, where you should have lunch. If, and it was aimed at the American market it was the, where the businesses were starting to understand that they're in London. I mean, they were laid down their understanding, but that, that it was becoming so important. And I just looked at what she had, had gathered and started trying to talk her through it to, to organize and present and communicate and everything. So I Am International became a, a must-have for anyone from the rag trade that was going to London to have, have all the information they would need. 
so we went, we went down this way and it, it, it was like a license to print money. It was so successful. We would have meetings and we'd talk about what looked interesting and then what we'd heard was happening. It was just terrific, but lots of, and, and it's, it was such a simple idea that inevitably lots and lots of other people who are who were doing their own version of the same thing. It, it just became not a forecast, but a report. And that's the big difference. So everything in the first in these early shopping reports that so many people were doing, it, everything already exists. And the only thing that I started thinking, well, this is like being back at Carlisle's doing a window. Why They should group the things together and, and make a story out of it, you know, make it a narrative. So that, that's really what, what we started to move toward. And then uh, I had one of those aha moments. I remember so plainly, I always went out at night, you know, night or day, I would go out with women who are daily people. And we went to a nightclub. I can't remember the name of it, but it was like the hot one at the moment. And I was supposed to sketch what, what everybody was wearing. And so I took notes and everything, and, and everybody was wearing what you think of as swinging London, the long straight ironed hair and the micro mini and the boots. And the men were all in the, the skin tight t-shirt or jacket with flares and everything. And it wasn't, it wasn't news. I had the nerve to argue with the editor that I was reporting to and said, if you send this to New York, they're not going to like it because they already have it. And it's, it's, the, it's of the moment, but you've got to find something new. And so the editor left and said, and, you know, we talked about the sketches that would be needed. And so I was just hanging out and having some drinks. And I noticed in a sort of dimly lit corner, a boy and girl sitting on the floor. And, and I just thought, oh, my God, they look fabulous. This is, this is terrific. Uh, the, I, the girl, I, can, I think it was Grace Coddington, but I didn't, don't know. And, I didn't, and she wasn't anybody known then so i may be wrong but she had grace coddington orange hair and she was wearing a velvet gown that had chiffons with panels on it and boots and jewelry and she was with a young man who was wearing a russian uh, tunic and boots and everything and so i'd asked them where they got their clothes and why they were dressed like nobody else was dressed and they said you know that they'd been to a sale at a theatrical costume store it was going out of business and so they they bought that and i and i thought they, they looked so great and then i i thought oh my god i just saw the movie camelot and the vna had it was having an our nouveau jewelry exhibition and i thought wouldn't it be wonderful if, if we had a, a a whole store that was medieval and uh so, so then I thought, well, why can't, and, and, and I was just about to work on the month's report, and I thought, why just show more merchandise in the stores? I'm going to show do a story about medieval fashion and pick out the colors that it should be and find the, have, have our fabric editor find me damasks and velvets and uh, so that we can do, do a creative story that somebody you know, could be inspired by or actually use because all the all the things that I showed were my sketches, so the fact that I I could I could sketch what wasn't what hasn't been made yet became the big difference between what everybody else tried to do. I, but I did it first and continued to do it. 
Right. So it's not what fashion is, but what fashion should be and the direction of fashion, right? So you're kind of influencing fashion then as a trend forecaster, looking what's maybe things that people are doing, maybe piecing them together to come up with a vision of where you see fashion going? It's all about to connect the dots. And most people still can't do it. And let's say you see, you see it done, and then they can copy where the dots are. When I became the most quoted man in the fashion world, I, that was the title I had for a decade at least. And I think that that idea that you are, you are communicating a whole concept and you can piecemeal it or not, but it has to be the right concept. So it was like storytelling. And you could pick out just bits and the things didn't have to be new, but they had to be packaged. And as, as time went on, everybody was doing their version of the same things. So it became a real challenge to come up with something, a, a new story. And I always, every, every February, I would give myself creative free reign to do something really far out. And I, I was so successful at it. I remember one of my favorite clients said, is there any way I can pay extra so I don't have to have the February issue? Because that's the one I always did my from most far out projection. <laughs> and I, I, I love it when people tell me something that is so, so wise that I can repeat in presentations and stuff. I like the communicating ideas. Once I, I get an idea, I, I want to share it. So I, I, it was the perfect, perfect job for me. Yeah, and you actually were so successful at IM. Um, I should say that IM's clients included people like Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, Versace. I read an interview with you where you said that most high-profile designers deny ever purchasing creative information to inspire them, but they, in fact, were clients of IM International. And then you yourself in 1980 started your own trend forecasting service called the Fashion Service which you were selling trend information to designers and merchandisers. And then in 1990, you went on to your third and final phase of your forecasting career. You became the creative director of the Doniger Group. Yes. And you held that position, I think, until just the last few years. So it's 40 plus years of yourself forecasting trends. I'd love if we could just talk a little bit more about how you did this And maybe if there's some particular moments you remember, like you just talked about possibly seeing Grace Coddington on the floor in her fabulous velvet dress, if there's any particular moments you remember throughout your career and maybe some memorable trends that you forecasted. I eventually discovered that I could have done much sooner because the idea of trending, trending as a verb became universally used that way in the fashion world. Come into the room and start trending, please. <laughs> it, so it's, it's the idea that everybody in the world w- wakes up naked and they make a decision about what to wear. And that's the re- result of factoring in, in the weather, their physique, their gender, their pastimes. And, and, and everybody has an assortment of, of things that they want to think about. And they don't realize that they're they're making a statement with everything they choose out of their closet. And you should, if you're paying attention, you should be able to psych out where their heads are at so that you will know they are going forward. At the beginning of the trend to a fourth ending, uh, it was very highly creative because I was working directly with the people like Calvin and 
and especially the uh, Italian people. And uh, one of the things that I think I was very influential in doing was helping to promote the Italian designers when they came on the scene. And I really was amazed because I, I was such an alcoholic and you know, that's a whole different story. But uh, when I started going to Italy with the Italian ready-to-wear collections, Italians just didn't get it. They, if they copied it directly from London, that was fine. But they, they were too old-fashioned dressy. And then something wonderful happened in the Milanese textile industry started to boom. And I spotted early on that there was, uh, there was something magical about what was happening in, in Milanese fashion. I was very important and influential in wake, making people wake up to what was happening in Milan. And, and for example, uh, Versace and Armani and Frank Moschino, then when they first started having shows in Milan, the fashion industry people were all going to Rome, which was dead in the water. And five of us went to the first Milanese Fashion Week. And it was just fantastic. And, and what was great about it was that the designers wanted us so badly, wanted the press so badly, that they had arranged you know, five days of fashion shows. They took turns feeding us, like, like Armani would do breakfast and Versace would do lunch and Franco Moschino would do dinner. And so, so they, were, they were grateful. They actually wanted us to, us to promote them. But the French people were not that way and because they were convinced because of their mammoth egos that we were going to steal their designs. And a lot of people did. As an illustrator, I was approached by several companies to sell them my sketches from the couture collections, which was very a very old-fashioned sort of concept. But I, I was intrigued that, that the French were so so confident of their grandeur that they could call the shots. I also found it was interesting in some other articles I read about you that you didn't always have an easy relationship with fashion designers. There's an article actually from 96 that says, who's afraid of the big bad wolf? <laughs> that article, yes. Well, <laughs> well I mean, it, it was it became part of the game, and I, I loved playing it. As, as they, when when I am international first started, they were convinced that we were stealing their ideas. Now you always said, you know, if you had a good idea, I would steal it, but you you haven't shown me anything I haven't seen before. So we had a constant battle to get tickets for shows, and we we would go to any extreme. They're like. Well, for example, you may as well be dead in those days if you didn't have a Kenzo ticket. And I, I remember a Kenzo show that was done at Gallery Lafayette in, in Paris. And I, the show was, was supposed to start at 7.30. And the buzz went out that it, it was going to be a, a terrific show of power because they were having the gendarmes and, and dogs, police dogs, to make sure that people couldn't break into the, the show it was considered Kenzo's collection was considered like a national treasure and, and commercial American ugly people should not be able to buy them and everything so it was, there was anger in the air and it was 
was quite exciting because everybody figured out the same thing that if you were in the store when it was open, they were closing the store at seven and the show was at seven thirty. But if you were there at seven, just you would just stay in the store and then you could see the Kenzo show. Who's <laughs> disagreed with that idea? But they handing in your tickets when you went in turned out to be a real challenge because they were serious people with guns and police dogs and standing there with the tables where they can't find the alphabetical people's names and that sort of thing. And I remember when they rang the bells because the, the store was closing. And so all the fashion people went and tried to blend in with the merchandise in various departments and stuff. And, and I remember hiding under a cupboard in the kitchen where <laughs> Because when I, when I, I didn't have a ticket, of course, but I had, I had a friend, an English journalist who had to go leave Paris early and go, go back to London. So she gave me her ticket. And so I, I handed the ticket to the guard who was taking it. And he looked at it and he said, this is not your ticket. And I said, yes, it certainly is my ticket. And he said, it is not your ticket. I'm not stupid. He said, this, this is a ticket for Cynthia Fig. And I said, yes, I'm Cynthia Fig. <laughs> and I walked in and hid there until the, the dogs were out of control. And the people were, were trying to run down the stairway and stuff. And, and I remember the police, the police grabbed one of the London female journalists with a guard on each side. And this, and this woman was screaming, you can't do this to me. I'm Mademoiselle Magazine. <laughs> oh, no. Um, and then, then I remember when Karl Lagerfeld was really hot and just started. The show was at the Trocadero, an enormous space. And, but we, we didn't have tickets for I Am International, and I was determined that we were going to see it. So with a couple of other people from the company, we went to the Trocadero at about four o'clock in the morning, and the people were coming, the cleaning people were coming in to get, get the building ready for the, the show. And so I thought we could disguise as part of the cleaning crew. And so we waited, and as the people came, French people look, are always so typecast in their worlds and jobs, so we could tell which ones looked like they were cleaning ladies and everything. And so uh, I connected with a, a, a man and, and tried to explain in my broken French that I would like to buy his overalls that he was wearing. So he thought it was funny. He said, yes, if you give me your clothes. And I, I don't know what I was wearing, but it was not in overalls. But we went behind the bush hedges and changed clothes. So I walked in carrying a bucket and a mop, and so did the other IM people who were in. And so we cleaned and then just stood in the back of the room while the, the show started. And, and our fabric editor was ejected from the show after, after the first scene. And we got back to, to the office. And uh, she said, oh, I've got, to, I've got to call, I can't remember who it was, a, a big manufacturer. And she said they wanted to know about the Karl Lagerfeld show. And I said, but you, haven't, you didn't see much of it. And so she said, that's okay. She called up, she said, and she had the client on the phone and said, I saw the most wonderful thing, and it's going to be the only thing people are going to be talking about. And it was just the very first outfit that she had seen before she got tossed out. And... Lee Rudd and I climbed through the window of the ladies' room in another in a hotel, so we could steal the steal seats. 
You predicted so many fashions. I came across this wonderful article from, I think, 1990, which I just love because this is such a prime example of what you were doing. You are quoted as saying that 90s fashion is going to be simpler, more refined. You talk about shrinking shoulder pads and the disappearance of the shoulder pad. And then you talk about pretty plaids, summer tartans, and knit dressing. And mind you, this is 1990, so the 90s fashion hasn't happened yet. But all of those things would come to fruition throughout the 90s. So I think that's such a perfect example of what you did as a trend forecaster. Like John Galliano and Mark Jacobs and those kind of people were like the, the crescendo of the trending trend. It was a wonderful golden moment and I'm so glad I, I was there. I'm so glad I was a part of it because I believed in it. You've lived an incredible life, David. You had your finger on the pulse of fashion for some 60 years. I thank you so much for being here today. I cannot let you go, however, without talking to me about your incredible work as a paper doll artist. Oh, yes. Um, We talked a little bit about you playing with paper dolls as a young boy, and now you are a paper doll artist yourself. You have a wonderful website, paperdollywood.com. It's such a treat to, to go over there. It's a gold mine of paper dolls and then also a rabbit hole that I I got swept into because you have all these wonderful blog posts explaining all of your paper dolls. So can you tell us about how you came to this art form and what inspires you to create? Oh, absolutely. I was visiting a friend in Chicago and, and I've always bought, you know, coffee, coffee table books about fashion and, and stuff. So I, I, I like paper things. And he found a an estate sale that was being uh, given. Uh, An obviously gay man had passed away and left an enormous collection of of books and magazines and paper dolls. And this friend that I was staying with in Chicago remembered that I had talked about my cousin Lois's paper doll collection. And I said, I would love to go to this auction and see what what is is there. And it it was phenomenal and it was strange and, and I met I met people people other collectors and discovered that they were so nice. They were not like people in the fashion industry at all, and they were you know wonderful little blue-haired little old ladies who lived in trailers, but, but like beautiful clothes and old movies and things. So I I I bought I bought a, a sizable amount of vintage paper dolls for that I could study and see what made them seem so magical to me. And because they, they're so, they, they're rendered so beautifully. And I was at, a, at like my second convention for the paper doll community, national convention in Rhode, Rhode Island. And I met a, a young woman who, who had a little company that she did her research and found old vintage paper doll books whose copyright had not been renewed so she could reprint them. And, and I, I, I thought that was doing a service so that we could all have these paper dolls that were so rare. And I said, why don't you, why don't you have today's artists do them? And she said, oh, well, I couldn't pay enough money. And I said, well, I'll do it for nothing if you want. And, and I hadn't been illustrating for years and, and wanted to do, do it again. And, and so she started a, a company 
and she's now called Paper Studio Press. And she's like the biggest publisher of Paper Dolls books. And she and I became best friends, and she's wacky, and as everyone in the Paper Doll world is. I mean, they're, they're so, such kind and gentle people. And I've had such good times. Her name is Jenny Taliadoros. And uh, we've, we've traveled together, and we've, we've run Paper Doll conventions together because they happen, they happen once a year. And because of the virus, they've been shut down for a couple of years. And I'm, I'm probably getting too old to, to go to the convention, but I'll, I'll hear all the gossip, I'm sure, and there's so much of it in the paper doll world. But it was, what I found wonderful about it is the meeting of, of stars. Like uh, uh, Margaret O'Brien came to one of the paper doll conventions and, and we chatted and she told me about you know, her life at, at the MGM studio school with Elizabeth Taylor and Mickey Rooney and people like that. So that, that was fun. But then we, you know, we always have to get authorization from the celebrity or the celebrity's estate. And like some celebrities don't want to be paper dolls. Like Mary Tyler Moore does not want to be a paper doll. What? I feel like that would be the greatest honor of my life if someone made me a paper doll. That's so amazing. Around kid. (laughs) (laughs) Jenny and I went went to meet Phyllis Diller when we got permission to do her paper doll book, which is one of my favorites, I think, because she told us we could use her comedy, her jokes uh, to write uh, between the clothes. And so, so we went, and she, she lives in a mansion uh, in Los Angeles, or well, not any longer, because she's dead, she's dead, isn't she? I keep saying that about so many people. I think, it, I think die, die, death must be a trend. But you've immortalized so many of them in these wonderful artistic renderings. Yes. Do you have any favorite paper dolls that you've, you said Phyllis, Diller? I love Doris Day. And one of the reasons I love her is that my publisher has sold 98,000 copies of her book. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So how can I not love her? I've never met her, but we've talked on the phone. 98,000 paper doll books. Yes. Wow. Wow. Well, I know our listeners are going to immediately go on to this website and order some of your wonderful paper dolls. They're so enchanting. And I just love that in so many ways, it's like you've connected with this younger David, right? Who had to hide your paper dolls. And now you're this famous paper doll artist. I just love it. It's such a wonderful, wonderful trajectory to see with your life and and knowing what we know about your career and and where fashion took you. It's so wonderful that you've returned to paper dolls after all this time. Yeah, the only thing we certainly haven't talked about is, is the four most important people in my life are my children. And one of them is especially close to, to me, uh, my daughter Amanda, who, who loves you. <laughs> and I'm supposed to say hello to you. And- oh, tell her hello. And she has a website called uh, The Ultimate Fashion History. Oh, that's wonderful. So you uh, inspired her, no doubt, her love of fashion. Yes. And I have a son, Zachary, who lives in West Palm Beach and is terrific. And was a Desert Storm soldier during the war. And I have my two stepdaughters, who are now sweet little old ladies who live in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Do all the kids several times a week. Oh, that's wonderful. 
Well, thank you so much, David. This has been a real treat. I, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you to your wonderful husband, Francisco, for setting this up for us. And yeah, this has just been absolutely wonderful. David, this was amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. And may I just remark what a an incredible, remarkable career you have had. I know, April. And for one person to have experienced and influenced so many different facets of the fashion industry is truly incredible. And as promised, I tracked down David's front page 1964 article in Ohio's newspaper, The Plain Dealer, entitled 5,000 at Theater, Beatle Maniac's Mob Male Fan. David, as our listeners know from this interview, was that male fan. (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, there's David in suit and tie, smiling face with his unmistakable Beatle haircut. And this was apparently quite the scene, as the article attests to. They interviewed one girl who had mobbed and kissed David, and she (laughs) said, I couldn't help myself. You just looked so much like them. I had to kiss you. (laughs) David, thank you again for being so generous with your time and stories from your life lived in fashion. Dress listeners, you're definitely going to want to head over to paperdollywood.com. That's Dollywood with a D to check out David's stunning array of paper dolls featuring the who's who of our favorite Hollywood royalty, including Marlena Dietrich, Josephine Baker, Marilyn Monroe, and oh so many more. And he has also written up wonderful bios about his all-star cast of women. So be sure to check that out as well. Yeah, and of course, we'll be sure and put links to David's work in our show notes, including his trend forecasting website. And you'll also find a link to that Decoder Ring podcast episode I mentioned earlier. It's a much more in-depth and insightful look at David's relationship to paper dolls. And I highly, highly recommend it. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you dream of the paper doll versions of your life and wardrobe next time you get dressed. We always welcome you to write to us if you'd like to at dress at iheartmedia.com or you can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast where we post images that accompany each week's episodes. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. More Dress coming your way on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.